Sound Design. So I can drive the truck. I'm a stage management lighting split. And the minute they would see that, they're like, okay, come here. Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the show to help you build your career as a sound engineer and the home of the world's first online career coaching program optimized for audio professionals. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by touring theatrical technical director and lighting extraordinaire, Heather Egan. Heather, thanks for being here. Sorry, Heather Lynn. Heather Lynn. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, about that. So do you like my title for you? Touring technical director, theatrical lighting extraordinaire? Yeah, I think it's pretty accurate. So Heather Lynn, I definitely want to talk to you today about electricity, lighting fundamentals, fundamentals, and life on the road. But first of all, what is the greatest musical of all time? I would have to say Sweeney Todd. Swing your Have you worked on that show yet? I have. And you toured with it? Uh, I did not tour with it. I worked on it at a production house up in Rochester when I lived there. Is it awesome to watch or awesome to work on or both? Um, It was both. Our production was really stylized and it was super fun to prep the plot and everything and then watch them rehearse. And I don't know, it was just really fun all around. I enjoyed it. So how did you get your first job in lighting? Uh, my first job in lighting was in college. Um, I went as a stage management focus and also, and then decided to double focus in stage management and lighting. And our professor said, I need some people for this lighting gig and show up at this address at this time and, you know, we'll give you money. And I said, okay. Sweet money. My, I know, right? <laughs> In college, no less. Wow. The gig was uh, Morgan Stanley's corporate Christmas party at their headquarters in New York City. So we showed up and we decorated their machinery room with a bunch of pars and red and green gel and set up for their Christmas party. Took a few hours and that was that. That was the first, uh, that was the first lighting gig I did. Um, outside of like class and such. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Nice. So people that you met on that show and that professor who hired you there then hired you or remembered you for more gigs in the future. Exactly. So Heather Lynn, you and I met on a national tour of the musical review Route 66. Where goes from St. Louis down to Missouri? Oklahoma City looks look so pretty awesome. And I'll never forget a conversation we had where we were talking about our plans for our plans after the tour. And I told you that I was looking for more sound design work. And I remember asking you why you didn't try to find more work as a lighting designer. It seemed to me like that was the obvious promotion from lighting tech. But you explained to me that you can actually make more money as a tech. And at the time, I just disregarded what you said because I was working hard to eliminate pretty much all mixing and tech work from my life and just work full-time as a sound designer. So fast forward two years, I moved to San Francisco and I'm trying to make a living as a sound designer, but I can't make enough to pay the rent, 
because there just isn't enough demand for my services yet for me to have, you know, back-to-back design gigs. So that's when I get back into being a tech. So I get back on my feet financially and I kind of start to see the wisdom in your words. Now I'm curious if you still feel the same way and if you're still kind of following the same path and where you see your career growing from here. Um, Well, I do still feel the same way. I found my place as a master electrician, assistant master electrician kind of deal. Um, I have the head for prep and, you know, to, I can arrange your plot to go into this space. I can find you power for this. My forte is in the prep and the installation and execution of other people's designs, which has worked out pretty well. So like when I've been touring, it was as the lighting supervisor. So it was my job to make sure I could fit the plot into various spaces without a problem or know how to adjust it. You know, I keep going with that because that's what I'm good at. That's what I like. And that kind of, it kind of leads into different aspects of lighting too. So, you know, I do that. I can, you know, I go load in shows every now and again, or I'll drop in and help somebody out with their show. But um, as far as design goes, it's nothing. I, I didn't really pursue it just because I found what I was good at. And now that I have that, that's what I want to keep doing. And it's not strictly just, tech work. Um, you know, occasionally I'll go in and assist a designer, but yeah, I just, um, I like where I fell in and it seems to work. So I'm going to keep doing that. Okay. So it's not purely financial reasons. You found what you're best at and, and stuck with it. Yeah. And, you know, and still the fact remains that I have more work more often in this capacity than I would as a designer. Um, so like that factors in, but that's not the, the leading factor in why I'm doing what I'm doing. For a long time, I thought that one of your strategies was to basically not have a home because you toured so much. And so I thought you just kept a few personal items at your dad's house, saved all your money, and that you would probably retire at 40 or something. At least that's, I think I just invented that in my head. But then (laughs) last year, you got an apartment in San Marcos of all places in Texas. And I was like, what is she doing? So... Uh, doesn't it make you nervous to be paying for a house that you don't live in? And and I guess it's not your financial plan after all to just save a bunch of money and tour and never stop and live anywhere. I guess you wanted to have your own place. Yeah, I did do the no place to live for about five years. And I that was more out of necessity than uh, out of any kind of strategic life plan. Oh, okay. I never had time to find a place to live. So I just left stuff at my dad's house and gave him the keys to my car and was like, I'll be back when I need you to pick me up from the airport. (laughs) (laughs) So um, about a year year or two years ago, it started to get on my nerves that I didn't have an actual home base to come back to. And a friend of mine was moving down to Texas to take a job at the university as one of the technical directors. And he said, hey, you want to come, you know, home base down here. I'll, I'll be here. I can watch your car. You'll have a place to come back to, um, whatever. And I was like, uh, yeah. Also, uh, Texas doesn't have a state income tax. Therefore, <laughs> it is financially responsible. All right. To do that as well. Um, and I found out that you know, yeah, it makes me a little nervous to put out money when I'm not here every month, but. 
at the end of the day, I just came back from a four month contract where I wasn't home at all. And to come back in and have all my stuff sitting, waiting for me and just kind of go right back into the house. Like it's worth it at this point. I feel like if I was out on contracts that were any longer, you know, if we went into six or eight month contracts, then it definitely would not be worth it. And I'd be back in the storage unit. But um, there's something to be said for having a, a home base and some place to come back to. So you're not constantly living out of a suitcase and, you know, all my mail's piled up on the table and my car's in the garage. And I guess it would be different if you had two or $3,000 a month place in New York, Manhattan or San Francisco or something. Yeah, because I feel at that point you're also adding in the, uh, the inevitable sublet of some yep. stranger living in your house so you don't have to pay for it. And I've become territorial in my old age and I don't want other people <laughs> yeah, you're in my so space. Old. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want other people in my space. This is mine. Don't touch it. Like I'm willing to pay for it and have it be here and take care of everything. And, you know, I like it. <laughs> So let's talk some more about touring. I know there are a lot of people listening who are interested in getting more touring work. You've been getting plenty of it. It's basically your entire career over the last few years. So so what has helped you stay busy in the touring world? And I'm not sure, are you searching and applying for jobs? Is there one connection you made in the past that has sort of led to all the work that you have now? How's that? How has that worked back? How has that worked out for you when you look back? When I look back, most of most of the tours I did were based on people I knew and contacts um, that you know helped me get in and whatnot. I think only one of my tours I actually applied for, but mostly it was you know it was through people I knew and how I stayed busy was that I carved out. I have my little niche in the touring world. I am a stage management lighting split which has on some of the smaller and medium scale tours become a necessity because they send out uh, their position of technical director, lighting supervisor, which is in charge of all the, uh, the advance work, you know, scheduling, setting up crews, uh, the install on site, managing the crews. And it's a perfect mesh of those two positions. So having that as my background and having a touring industry that has started to want that kind of position for their smaller tours, which is what I like. I don't like touring with hundreds of people. But that's really what kept me going was that more and more companies were looking for that exact split. And I can drive a truck. That's also part of <laughs> that's also part oh, really? of it. Was the um, most of these tours go out with like a 26-foot box truck. Uh, it doesn't require a CDL, but it does require some level of skill. And which you have. I drive, which I have. So I can drive the truck. I'm a stage management lighting split. And the minute they would see that, they're like, okay, come here. Um, so that's that's really what kept me going as far as the touring was that I just, I found my place in it. Really, when it came down to it, I had my pick of what show I wanted to do. It's funny that you mentioned that because I just published an interview with a guy who gets a lot of tours because he will mix front of house for concerts and be the tour manager. And you can kind of do both because while you're not mixing the show, you can be advancing the next tour. I mean, the next show for on the tour and taking care of everybody. And it sounds like there are probably a lot of jobs like that, that, you know, maybe are being combined or at least work well with each other and, and you can use to kind of make yourself more valuable. But I'm also impressed with your kind of 
can do and like value add attitude. I think a lot of times I would approach things as here's all the things I won't do. I'm definitely not going to drive. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And you're kind of like, Hey, I can help you with the driving and this and that and that and like all these different things. And they're like, yes, you're so valuable. Yeah. It, it, it depends on what level of show you're doing too. Like the, um, you know, the larger scale tours, everybody has one job and that's what they do and that's their thing. And that's fine. That's how that works. But for someone like me who doesn't particularly enjoy being one of, you know, 75 crew members that's traveling, I like the smaller shows and I don't mind doing a little bit more. Plus the, you know, the money was pretty decent. So I was like, all right, (laughs) why not do these things? I can, and that's what you need. So let me help you out. Did you keep in contact with people that you worked with or try to make that happen at all? Or did it just kind of happen on accident because people liked working with you? It just kind of happened. Um, most of the folks that are my connections are just my friends or folks that I've worked with a couple times. And we don't even necessarily make a point to stay in contact, but I do get calls every now and again. It's like, hey, uh, you know, we have this gig you might be perfect for. Do you want it? A lot of times it comes out of nowhere, but it's just people I've worked with and I've helped other people out getting stuff as well. I never really have strategy for it. It was just if we worked with each other and we liked each other and help each other out later on. It seems like it all kind of worked out for you, but if you had to start all over again, I guess that would be tough to replicate. Like you, you would have to gather all those contacts again, or if you move to a new country, you'd sort of have to figure out where those strategic people were again and, and try to figure out how to recreate it. I like to say most of my career happened by accident because it was just right place, right time, said the right thing to the right person. (laughs) Um, You know, (laughs) there was really no strategy involved. It just kind of happened. Touring is hard. I think we all agree. Most days you spend traveling and performing with little personal space, and we just talked about why you wanted to have your own home to come back to. So I'm wondering if you have some ways that you've managed to remain sane and happy on the road, like any strategies for health or, I don't know, personal space. Well, I don't know if it's a strategy so much as it was uh, negotiations. I, After a certain point, I think after my second tour, I refused to work on any show that would make me share a room. I would negotiate for a single room, even if it meant like a lower weekly rate, because that space is important, especially on the smaller tours, which I like. You know, if you're touring with 10, 15 people, sometimes less, it's important to have some alone time uh, because you are seeing the same 10, 15 people every day, day in and day out. Um, So that was my big thing was just to make sure I had my own space. Beyond that, it was just, you know, knowing what you need as a person. Like if you're super stressed out, and you're about to, you know, blow your top, know what you need to do. And what I need to do when I get to that point, if nothing is going right, it's give me a minute, I'll be right back. Step off for five minutes, come back. Smoke some marijuana. Uh, No, negative. (laughs) (laughs) But step off, come back, whatever you need to do to manage that. And knowing what your point is before you're going to say something that you regret or make enemies of the people you need to work with the rest of the day. Um, It's very important to just understand where you need to be and what you need out of the day and make sure you get it. Sometimes you got to make some noise to get it too, but 
Um, Stand up yeah. for yourself and stuff? Yeah. You know, if you're like, I, you know what, we haven't had a break in four hours. We're taking one. You know, it doesn't, you know, that's very rare, but it does happen. And you need to know when to start making noise. Because, again, if you make, if you start fussing at every little thing, no one's going to listen. No one's going to pay attention. It's that kind of balance between getting the job done and making sure that everybody's getting taken care of. Remember that time on tour, on our tour, when everyone got sick? Oh, yeah, that was great. (laughs) That was so weird, and it was couple of people at a time and then it would be the next city a couple more people would get sick and it was the kind of violent sick where people would be like vomiting all night long it was terrible yeah it was horrible i think you and i didn't get sick that is correct we were one of the few that is very correct we made lots of trips to the drugstore do you think that's because you and i are stronger than other people um i think it's because we're just better just better than them well my parents didn't make me (laughs) sanitize my hands every time i came back in the house that's really? <laughs> That's what you think? Your parents didn't make you wash your hands when you were a kid. And so when I was done playing, we didn't have to wash uh-huh. our hands. So I feel like I have a better have a immune, immune system. system. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. So you just got back from your first job on a cruise ship with Disney. So tell me about your experience. Was it fun? Was the money better than other jobs you've had? And would you do it again? All right. So, yes, I did start with uh, Disney Cruise Lines. It was an experience. It was a little bit of everything. Take every possible emotion you can think of, and it happened in what? that form. Why? Uh, it's not necessarily like, like, oh, I'm happy today. I'm sad tomorrow. I'm angry right now. There's just there's so many things that are beyond your control that can happen on a ship. <laughs> but it's the same space. It's the same show every day. And everything finds a way, a new and fascinating way to fail. Oh my god. <laughs> You'd have, we'd have parts of the system fail. I'm like, I didn't even know that was an option. And I don't know how to fix this. All right, give me a minute. Um, you know, I came back from dinner one day and all of the power had gone out on my side of the control booth, all of it. And that was between shows. So, you know, we're like, um, okay, there are now six departments involved in trying to hunt down where this power comes from, why it's off, when we can get it back up, can we still do the show? How long can we hold before we have to cancel the show? If we get this back up, what do we have to do before we start? (laughs) It was definitely an experience, and I did enjoy it overall. As far as the money goes, I did take a pay cut to go on the cruise ship. However, with Disney and the way they run their cruise ships, the cut was worth it as far as the benefits and the perks and just everything that's involved in the whole package. It it wasn't that big of a deal, and um, they take care of their people. So I didn't mind that so much, and okay. it, was, uh, it was certainly an experience. So what do you think? You going to do it again? Well, I signed the contract. Well, I signed the contract. <laughs> well, I guess you're committed. All right. So, so cool. I'm going back. <laughs> so, Heatherlyn, everyone knows that you can throw a rock in any direction and hit a sound engineer, right? This is true. But it's a lot less common to hit a lighting or a video engineer, which is why we're going to talk about lighting right now and which is why I think it's so important for people to people who are trying to find more work to increase their general skills and employability. So, for example, moving to a new city, it's a lot more likely that you'll be able to find work right away if you can assist in audio, video, and lighting than if you can only mix front of house for rock bands, for example. So... 
I know we don't have time for an entire class here, but I wanted to try and at least get into some of the basics of what you would expect an L2 or some kind of lighting assist position to know. So first I thought maybe we could just define some terms so people know what we're talking about here. So who are all the players in lighting? I know you've got the master electrician, the LD, the L1, and the L2, but you mentioned some other names already. So what else do we have? Yeah, so we generally have master electrician, your lighting designer, your um, any kind of lighting techs that are just your general crew. Uh, for a show run, you might just have a board op and or a deck electrician that's taking care of everything on deck. There are loads of positions as far as lighting is concerned. But those are the most common, right? Those are the most common, yeah. Occasionally you get somebody who's made up a position because they needed somebody to do this, and that's fine, but... Mm -hmm. But generally, you'll have your your master electrician, your uh, electricians, your deck elects, your board ops. And why is the master electrician not called the L1? I guess the L1 is normally the board op? Um, that would probably be your head electrician, uh, who is in charge of maintaining and making sure everything's running during the run of the show. Your master electrician is generally just prep and install. And by the time that show opens, they're working on the next show. And then you have a head electrician who's in charge of the maintenance and upkeep of the rig during the run. Huh. Um, it depends on how the place is structured. Like there's, you know, there's any number of, of ways to do it. I've been to places where the master electrician was also the board op and in charge of maintenance and upkeep, huh. which is a whole lot for one person. What kind of basic things would you expect me to know if I were coming in to assist you in lighting on, say, a show install? I would expect a general knowledge of different type of types of fixtures, the difference between an ellipsoidal, a par, what, you know, the, the slang terms for them too, you know, your source fours, your altmans, you know, any, just a general over, general knowledge of the different types of fixtures and how they work and how they function. And if I tell you to go get a wide lens for the par, you have an idea of what I'm talking about and how to find that and how to change it out. Also, just a basic knowledge of how the systems work. You know, you don't run cables backwards. Like if you're running data for moving fixtures, um, knowing which way that's supposed to go and how the distribution works from the, you know, from the power supply and such. You know, gels and accessories like templates top hats, that kind of stuff. We don't expect everybody to know everything, but just a general knowledge so that maybe you know where a, a template goes in a fixture. Because I've on tour, I've asked people to drop the templates into the source fours, and I come back and the template holder is sitting in front of the gel on the front of the unit, and that's just wrong. <laughs> it's happened more than once. <laughs> Well, so let me ask you about some of these things because yeah. we can at least help people if they find themselves in this position and mm -hmm. they haven't done lighting before. So one of the first most confusing things when I've done any lighting gigs is that other lighting technicians will ask for something by two different names. And for example, Source 4 is just a brand name, but yes. they'll use that to refer to what? They'll use that to refer to any ellipsoidal with shutters. Most folks lately have gotten away from that. So like a source four is actually a source four. Otherwise, they'll ask for a Leco, 
<laughs> which is also yep, sausage is the brand name. with shutters, but yeah. it generally refers to the older style ones, not the source fours, uh, the newer ones. Um, so most folks, when they want a source four, will ask for a source four. If they want one of the older units that's in the house, they'll ask for a Lico. And that could be any any old brand. It could be an Altman or whatever. And then the second thing is that, I don't know, it just seems like there are a lot of things that are standard, but then I would have questions. So if someone asked me for a source four, then I would say, okay, do you need a 750 or a 550? Like, what's the power rating? Is that also referenced in just asking for a source four? Um, it depends on where you're at. Um, most places, uh, in my experience, will say that they need a 750 if they want a 750, if they have a mixture of, of the fixtures on site. Because some places, you know, they've gotten a new order and they've got a bunch of 750s and they've got a bunch of 550s. And all that refers to is the wattage on the lamp that they can put in it. 750s are brighter than the 575s. If it makes a difference to them, they'll ask for you to go find a 750, 26 degree or a 575. Recently, I haven't run into that too much. Most folks now have, you know, one or the other or, have, you know, say, hey, make sure you get one of the 750s. Okay. And they're marked. It's nice and easy. And then if you said wide angle lens and I would say, well, does that mean 19, 20, 30? If they're referring to a source four or any kind of ellipsoidal, they will tell you what degree they want. So they'll say, hey, bring me a 19 degree. And again, they're marked on the barrel. So it's just a matter of knowing where to look on the barrel and make sure you're getting what you want. Or if you can't find any, asking if they have extra barrels laying anywhere because you can swap them out on the source force uh, at least. So generally, generally, whoever's asking will tell you exactly what they want. And if they don't, ask. If they don't give you a degree on the unit, ask what they want. Any other kind of common slang terms that you can think of that would trip up most people who are just starting out? Templates, gobos, they're the same thing. It just depends oh, on who template is a to. gobo. Template, gobos, mm. patterns, whatever, pie tins, however, it depends, on, <laughs> it depends on how long ago that person was trained in lighting. Right, got you it. Teach, uh, how long they've been in the business by what they call it. If someone calls something by something you've never heard, just... Say, what is that? And they'll tell you a different name for it, and you might know that one. One of the first off-Broadway gigs I had in New York, someone told me to go get the stick. And I was like, look, where I come from, the stick <laughs> is a really long stick that you use to poke a border over the set because uh -huh. it fell in front. Right. <laughs> and what they meant was extension ladder. How often do you listen to Sound Design Live? Almost every time it comes out. And what do you like about it? It's just much more uh, relevant and it's also uh, not only relevant but up to date, you know, like relevant for audio and not some old guy that's telling you to... Yeah, I hate those old guys. Those old beardy guys. <laughs> <laughs> Sound Design Live, bringing you pro audio insight, beard free since 2011. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. Well, is there anything else that you wish everyone knew or that you find is often lacking the people that you're working with and you're like, oh, really? You don't know how to do that? 
Uh, are you really don't know this term or you didn't know this kind of cable or something like that that keeps coming up for you? Um, yeah, the one thing that kept coming up on tour was that the house electricians um, did not understand DMX universes. I would often, I would travel with scrollers or something else that, you know, ran off the data. And a I'd scroller ask is a, a light that can change its gel, right? Yeah, it's, okay. uh, you put it on the front of the light and it's got a string of like 16 or 20 gels That's that it school. can scroll through. Yeah, old school stuff. But I would always ask um, if anything was addressed in the range that I wanted to put my scrollers. And they would say no or yes. And I was like, well, if yes, let's put them on the second universe. Because they, they didn't have anything on the second universe. And what I found was because that most, most consoles have two outputs. You're talking about two DMX two outputs, outputs, right? A, yeah. a universe one and a universe two. Okay, got it. Yeah, and you can, you can even split those and get more than two, but that's a different story. But yeah, so you've universe one and universe two, which is pretty common. I would ask to put them on the second universe to stay away from like house light dimmers and, you know, inadvertently controlling things with my scrollers that I shouldn't be. And what I found was that a lot of house electricians didn't understand the difference. They would run a second cable for those scrollers, oh. but it would still be on the first universe. <laughs> Okay. And I would ask, is this on the second universe? Yeah, well, I ran a second cable. I'm like, a second cable does not the second universe make. <laughs> um, it actually has to be on the second universe. I have a handful of questions here that people wrote in on Facebook, and I thought maybe we could just kind of go through them quickly, do kind of like a lightning round. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that's good. So Charlotte asks, did you go to school for lighting design? If so, where? Yes, I went to Marymount Manhattan College in New York City, and my degree is in stage management and lighting design. How do you feel being a woman in the lighting design industry? Um, definitely a minority, but it doesn't really, it doesn't affect too much. Because you don't give a fuck. No, generally once I dock the truck in front of a bunch of stagehands, my level of respect goes up. <laughs> 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 Has being a woman made your job more difficult? Uh, in some cases, but then you just it's it's also about knowing how to handle people. If you can if you can read the group of people that you're working with for the day and get in with them really quickly, uh, no problem at all. You know the skill that I developed on tour was um, being able to memorize whole groups of people's names for at least 24 hours. That you're better than me. I can't do that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. On that tour specifically, I got in the habit of whenever we would meet the next team of people, I would remember all of their names just for that day. I've gone 15 hours without knowing my head electrician's name. <laughs> oh my God, that's embarrassing. Okay, what is your favorite kind of theater? Musical theater. Sweeney Todd. I like uh, musicals. There's a lot more happening. Hell yeah. Favorite equipment to work with? Instruments, consoles, et cetera, hog, et cetera, et cetera. Um, anything ETC. It just, it just works. Oh, that doesn't say et cetera. It says ETC, says question ETC. mark, hog, question mark. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I prefer ETC. Uh, we currently have hog on the ships, and it's, um, it's a slight challenge, but I prefer ETC. Horror stories, question mark. Too many. 
<laughs> like every every show ever. All right, all right. I got a quick horror story. All right. We were doing a show in Florence, Alabama, and one That's of the That's a real hands, place? Florence, Alabama? Is. All right. Yep, and um and one of the stagehands told me, "Hey, you got to come outside and see our marquee. It's beautiful at night." And I was like, "Okay, great." So I go outside with him to look at the marquee. He's absolutely right. It's gorgeous. It's one of the prettiest ones I've seen. And I'm outside for maybe five minutes. I come back in and I see my stage manager running through the room going, where's the fire extinguisher? And I was like, well, I was gone for five minutes. <laughs> and they're looking for a fire extinguisher in one of the um, units in the house rig. Because uh, on that tour, we did not travel with our own lights. One of their pars had burst into flames right over top of our set. The house was open. The main curtain was still open. And... It was in, it was on fire and there was smoke and surprisingly no fire alarms went off. That's oh when we discovered that this facility did not have a smoke detection system. Whoa. Um we shut the main curtain. I mean the house was full. They saw what was going on. We shut the main curtain, opened the loading dock door, sent somebody up in a genie with the fire extinguisher and thankfully they were able to blow out the fire in the back of the unit. Um, so that we didn't have to use a fire extinguisher right over top of our set. But um, that was the last time I left for five minutes before the show started. <laughs> Every time after that, someone's like, hey, come check out the marquee. And you're like, nope. I've, nope, I'm I've, good. I've, I've I'm done that before. That we're done. Yeah. <laughs> the best part of that was that after it was taken care of, I asked them to take it down because I didn't want it in the rig anymore. And they're like, no, it'll be fine. I'm like, no, no, it burst into flame once. Unplug it. Let's bring it down. I want to see what happened. And um, the inside, the the wires had come bare on the back of the um, on the back of the lamp holder, and they touched each other and just kind of sparked. And the units were so old that all of the insulation on the wires is what caught fire. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So Scary. it was. Um, yeah, so I set up my light board backstage for those performances so that I could sit there and hit the go button and watch the rig and make sure that nothing else um, decided to spark. Wow. You have an exciting yes. job. Oh, it was, it was awesome. Let's see. <laughs> the last question this uh, Charlotte asks is advice? Question mark. So obviously you don't know her. So it's hard for mm -hmm. you to give any advice per se. And we've already talked about a lot of stuff here in terms of where most of your work has come from, but just in general to Charlotte, would you like to think of any other piece of advice? If you, if you get a gig and you find you don't like it, quit. Really? Don't, don't leave them in the lurch. Don't leave them in the lurch. Don't like walk off and go home in the middle of a show. But, you know, give them the notice. Don't stay if you're unhappy because you're making other people unhappy and it's, you know, it's clearly not right for you. So just go, keep going until you find what you like. You seem to be insinuating that there are potentially unhappy people in theater. What? No way. Okay, so Timo asks, what books do you read? I, maybe, I'm assuming he's meaning books about lighting, but maybe he means books for fun. I don't know. Oh, well, we can do both. I don't read any books about lighting. Yeah, hate that stuff. Uh, I, I don't. I just don't. I'm a practical learner. Um, I, I don't do well with, like, theory on paper just I have to do it what you just talked about how great you are at planning and advancing shows yeah but that's not reading about lighting theory <laughs> alright <laughs> paperwork's a different story 
Um, I have a very specific genre of books that I like to read, and it is uh, historical fiction that takes place in New York City between the years of 1880 and 1912. And there are a lot of them. And you wrote a book. It's true. Plug your book. My book is called The Meteoric Rise and Fall of Nat Nelson, Vaudevillian Extraordinaire. And it is based on the true story of my great-great-uncle, who was a vaudevillian. And the story itself is fiction. I took a couple, uh, I took a couple facts and expounded upon them, uh, only to later find out that some of the stuff that I made up actually happened. Yeah, so the book is set in early 1900s and follows him as he makes a career in vaudeville. And where can people buy it? Right now, there is a link on my website that may or may not be active because I have been on a ship for four months and haven't had a chance to check in. (laughs) (laughs) What's the name of the site? Uh, My website is uh, www.heatherlynegan.com. Okay. What kind of turning points has your career had? So we already talked about you starting to work on a cruise. Um, We talked about you touring, but are there any other turning points that you want to mention? Yeah, a friend of mine has been working for the cruise line for a couple of years, and she was like, I think you would like this. I was like, all right. So she took, she invited me to cruise with her last November um, as her guest, and during that just kind of showed me around and was like, this is what we do. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could probably do this. She's like, all right, give me your resume. I was like, okay. And then I had an interview, and two days later they called and said, hey, we want you here in two weeks. Uh, Okay, last question from Timo. What is your lighting style? Let's see. He says, each designer has a certain style that once you know it, you can pick it out. I don't know if this question is worded correctly. I don't know. Does that make sense to you? What's your lighting style? Uh, It kind of makes sense to me, yeah. Um, I don't know that I necessarily have a style. I like shadows and I like direct sources and such. So, and I mean, I haven't designed anything in a while, but I like the shows that know how to use shadow along with the light, kind of in a film noir type sense. So, Heather Lynn, you have been so patient and uh, kind to let me question you all about your life and the details of your career. Where is the best place for people to follow your work online? Um, also on my website that may or may not be updated. <laughs> oh, are you posting stuff on there about your work? Occasionally, yes. Okay. Um, I've fallen a little bit behind with the cruise ship, but um, HeatherLynnEgan.com. Yep. Heather Lynn, thanks so much for being on Sound Design Live. Well, thank you. Sound Design. Yeah. Music in today's podcast by Stockholm Voodoo Orchestra. You can hear their new album called Burning on Spotify, iTunes, or Amazon. 